Psalm 34 is our Old Testament reading today. This is a psalm, it says, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. Now let's turn to Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder how many of you have heard before of the poem called Curfew Must Not Ring Tonight by Rose Hartwick Thorne. 
Interesting, she wrote it when she was only 16 years old, apparently. It's a pretty remarkable poem. It's about a young woman named Bessie, who's beloved with the terrific name Basil Underwood, um, has been condemned to be executed. That very evening, at the ringing of the curfew, the judge pronounces at the ringing of the curfew, Basil Underwood must die. This is when they would ring the town church bell at sunset to mark the end of the day. It was the ringing of the curfew. But on this day, when that bell rang at sunset, that was when the execution was set to take place. And so Bessie, the heroine of this poem, is driven by this one desperate notion. Curfew must not ring tonight. And so the poem tells the story of how she climbs up the church bell tower and she grabs hold of the clapper inside the bell so that when the bell ringer comes to ring it, it it doesn't make any sound. Uh, Conveniently, the bell ringer is hard of hearing, and so he doesn't notice the difference. And so as he's pulling the rope, the massive bell is swinging back and forth up in the steeple, but it's, of course, Bessie's own body that is crashing back and forth, first into one side and then the other. She is taking the force of that impact that otherwise would have been the clapper striking the sound across the town that would have given the signal for her beloved to be killed. Well, after the swinging stops, near the end of the poem, there comes riding into view the leader uh, who has the power to pardon this condemned man, Basil. And so uh, Bessie runs up to him, riding on his horse, and says she shows her hands, all bruised and torn, and her sweet young face still haggard with the anguish it had worn, touched his heart with sudden pity, lit his eyes with misty light, Go, your lover lives, he says. Curfew shall not ring tonight. And so instead of that day ending with Basil's execution, it ends instead with his full pardon. With Bessie in his arms as he whispers, Darling, you have saved me. Curfew will not ring tonight. That's how the poem ends. And as you think of that man at the very brink of the very end, with the verdict guilty and the sentence death, I want you to think of yourself in his place, condemned and sentenced, the just penalty of the law hanging over you, to your eternal destruction, and there's nothing that you could do about it. But one has come who loves you, who has placed his own body in the way of that sentence being carried out against you. So that instead of their descending on you the weight of wrath, 
and judgment you have received instead. A full pardon. Curfew will not ring for you, brothers and sisters, because of the bruised and torn, nail-pierced hands of the Lord Jesus, who has interposed his precious blood. And so with that in mind, I'm going to give you a few headings to help us to organize our thoughts about these first uh, four verses of Romans 8. This is one of the most glorious chapters, I think, in the whole Bible. We're going to take about five sermons to work our way all the way through. It's kind of a long chapter, too, and there's plenty here. But just to begin today with the first four verses, here's our outline. First, verses 1 and 2 will be forgiveness and freedom, what God offers to you. The second will be sin and sacrifice, what God did for you. That's verse 3. And then third, flesh and spirit, what God is doing in you. Verse 4. All right, so first, what God is offering to you in this passage is forgiveness and freedom. Chapter 7 describes that frustration of being stuck in sin, unable to do what we know is good because sin is so strong and we are so weak. In fact, so strong is sin and so weak is our fallen human nature that Paul cries out at the end of Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer comes in response, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This means that if you are trusting in Christ, you have a refuge from the wrath of God. You are sheltered from the curse of of the law. This means that if you belong to Jesus Christ, God is not angry with you. God is not angry with you. He is not displeased with you. He is not glowering and scolding, saying, Why can't you be better? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So often I think that we live the Christian life as though, well, yeah, I know that Jesus died for me, and so I guess I won't go to hell. I guess I can go to heaven when I die. But I still have this feeling that God is upset with me, that he's still not quite pleased, that I, I need to, I just got to keep working. I just got to keep trying harder to overcome that burden of God's displeasure. The gospel, though, keeps coming to contradict that feeling. It says, no. No, through the Lord Jesus, you are truly, fully forgiven. It is some of the best news in the gospel and some of the hardest for us actually to take to heart all the way down, full and free forgiveness all the way to the bottom. This is, this is reminding us, assuring us, 
hammering home to us that God is not somehow holding out on you. You don't need to spend your life kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. The glory of the gospel is that God has really, truly forgiven you of all of your sins and accepted you as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ given to you, counted as yours, imputed to you, and received through faith alone, not through anything that you can do for him. So the gospel doesn't say, Paul doesn't say here, um, some things he could have said. He could have said, well, there is therefore, because of what Jesus has done, there is therefore now a little less condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And maybe you can make up the difference and get rid of the rest of it. Uh, Yeah, the, there, the, the, the condemnation, therefore, isn't quite so bad for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or, the condemnation has been uh, staved off for a little while for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a, or maybe there's a, there's a second chance. There's a second chance to try harder this time not to be condemned for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, none of those are the gospel. None of those are true. Those are all ways that we are sometimes tempted to live the Christian life taking on ourselves those burdens that the gospel is meant to live as we listen to the voice of the accuser instead of the voice of the Lord Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne. That's the gospel attitude this passage is calling us to. There is no, no, zero, zip, nada, no condemnation for you. If you're in Christ, if you're trusting in him, your forgiveness has been won. Your pardon has been pronounced. You were a condemned sinner. You were doomed under the just penalty of the wrath of God. But that penalty has been canceled. Your guilt has been erased. And curfew shall not ring for you in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. Of verse 1. So we could ask, what does Paul mean when he goes on? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now this is a little bit tricky because Paul sometimes uses the same word law uh, with different meanings. It means different things in different contexts. Of course, we do this, too, all the time. So when we talk about like the law of the land, whether that's like the Constitution or some part of the criminal code or the tax code, uh, well, when we use law that way, we mean one thing. Um, but when we talk about, say, the law of gravity, we're talking about something quite different, right? They're not unrelated, but they're not the same thing. In the first case, we're talking about rules that people can either obey or disobey uh, with attending consequences, right? In the second case, the law of gravity, well, that's not really something that you obey or disobey, right? Um, 
what it's doing is it's describing a powerful reality that governs your life. Um, you're not choosing to keep your feet on the ground right now, or you're, you're, uh, you're not choosing to stay in your pew in obedience to the law of gravity. It's, it's a law in a different sense that's holding you there. Is this power that governs life on planet Earth uh, or in the universe. And the same thing goes then for what Paul is calling the law of the spirit of life versus the law of sin and death here in verse 2. So the law of sin and death is talking about the dominating power of sin in the life of a person who is enslaved to sin. It's like in chapter 7, verse 23, where he says, but I see in my members another law, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Okay? Um, So you can think of the power of sin is like kind of like a force, kind of like gravity. It's always, we're gravitating towards our sinfulness. But this verse describes then another kind of law, another power that, has, that is able to overcome, even to replace that power of sin, that gravitational force of sin, to replace that as the dominant force in your life. And that is the law of the spirit of life. The Holy Spirit who releases us not just from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. The gospel is incomplete unless we have both those parts. God is freeing us not just from sin's penalty, but also from its power. We shouldn't shouldn't see salvation as just a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? Like a monopoly. Um, so a lot of people kind of approach Christianity this way. Well, I believe in Jesus so that I can go to heaven instead of hell when I die. That's the way a lot of people think about the Christian faith, and that's partly the, uh, partly to blame is the way that we sometimes preach the gospel. That, uh, just believe in Jesus so that you won't go to hell. But that's not really the message of the Bible. That's certainly part of Christianity, and Christianity, the gospel is certainly not Less than that, no condemnation now I dread, but God is not just interested in canceling sin's penalty in your life. He's interested in removing sin's power over your life and replacing it with something else, replacing it with his own power at work in you, a new principle governing the way that you think and feel and make choices. The law of the spirit of life It's this new gravitational pull towards that life of holiness that God has called us to. It's a new, it's not a new, so when you hear the word law there, the law of the spirit of life, you shouldn't think, okay, well, there was one set of rules and it was this Ten Commandments, but now God is going to give me a new set of rules to replace the old set of rules. No, when, he, when he's talking about a law here, he's not talking about sets of rules. He's, he's not just talking about um, new principles to live by, but the power for a whole new life with God. So in verse 3, we move on. Paul uses the word law again, but this time he's using it back in the sense of the law of Moses, the law of God. Okay, so you see it it changes, the the same word, but um, more than one sense through the passage. 
So, verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Uh, He went to great lengths back in chapter 7 to remind us now that there's nothing wrong with God's law. God's law is good. It's holy. It's just. Um, The law itself is not sinful. It's not the law's fault that we sin. The law is not bad. It's sin within our hearts that finds in God's law all these new ways to disobey. And so the law of God itself, uh, say the Ten Commandments that sum it up, those commandments, they show us the right way, but they don't have the power to make us obey or to help us obey. I wonder if you've ever seen a, a stop sign that some car had just plowed right over. They'd gone off the road, run into the stop sign, and it's all twisted, it's all bent over. That stop sign told the driver what they were supposed to do, right? You're supposed to stop at the stop sign, but the sign was powerless actually to stop that car. That's why the sign got broken. Or you can think about the new students um, every fall driving the wrong way on Beaver or College Avenue, right? You know, they can have the one-way sign, that, but that sign can't make those drivers drive the right way. My dad likes to say, I'm only going one way. <laughs> um, but the, you see, the sign is powerless actually to turn the drivers around. The Ten Commandments alone cannot do anything to release us from that dominating power of sin that, apart from the intervention of Jesus, will inevitably enslave and control our hearts, that gravitational pull. It's a different illustration for this. Um, think about as a parent. So if a, if a very, uh, very young child is, is really upset and agitated, maybe pitching a fit a little bit, well, you might try telling them, uh, stop crying. Just stop it. Be quiet. <laughs> um, if you ever tried this, just saying that, saying it repeatedly, saying it louder, it's not going to help. See, at that point, just repeating the command is powerless to help that child calm down and stop crying. Now, this is an illustration, by the way. I'm not saying that this is necessarily uh, sinful for the child. It could be, might not be. Anyway, the, the, the point is to illustrate this idea that just repeating the command over and over um, doesn't necessarily help and generally can make things worse. And what the child needs at that point is for someone stronger than they are to intervene in the situation, probably. Um, for someone to do something that they cannot do for themselves which might take various forms depending on the situation. Again, I'm painting with a broad brush here. They might need to be comforted. They might need to be corrected. They might need to be helped. They might just need to be physically picked up and put in a different location. And uh, anyway, there's lots of ways this can go. But the point is, there is this helplessness where just telling the child what to do is useless for actually helping them to do it. And... Um, There's an application point here for Christian parents, I think. We've got to remember that Christian parenting is not just about laying down the law for our kids. Because why? The law alone is powerless to create obedience. 
So if we want our kids to grow up loving and obeying the Lord Jesus, we can't expect that just teaching them the right thing to do and then criticizing them when they don't get it right, that's not going to help them. We do need to teach our children God's law. We must. But what our kids need from us even more is God's gospel. That for them, there is no condemnation if they are in Christ Jesus. And furthermore, that the Holy Spirit can set them free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death that they were born enslaved to. They need to know that God has done what they could never do for themselves and what we could never do for them because we could never do it for ourselves. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Our children need to know that we are weak. Actually, I could revise that. Our children know that we are weak. What they need to know is that we know that we are weak, that we admit our weakness, that we are not pretending to be strong. We have cast ourselves on the grace and the all-powerful mercy of God who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now I realize some of you might be thinking, Zach, there's there's only like four parents of young kids in the room right now. And I, I get that. So in some ways I'm preaching to myself, but I hope that you can hear in this uh, an extended application for, for all of us in terms of, we're trying to get at what this, what this verse means. And also this extends to our other relationships, extends to how we talk about the gospel with friends and neighbors, how we communicate it to anybody, how we communicate it to a child is a great, is maybe the best illustration for for how we should think about communicating um, th- this truth of the gospel to other people who need to hear it in all of our relationships, to one another, as we all are seeking to come to the Lord Jesus in this childlike way, that we would be quick to acknowledge and uh, lay bare to one another our weakness before the law of God, and to rejoice together in the fact that God has done for us what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, so that we're not approaching one another, we're not approaching our non-Christian friends and neighbors as people who have it all together. We're the righteous ones, you know, bringing this, um, you know, religiosity to all of you poor, benighted souls out there who just can't get it right. No, we are sinners saved by grace, trying to preach the good news of Christ to other sinners who need grace. As it's been said, I forget by who, we are beggars, telling other beggars where to find bread. Well, back to the second half of verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. Now, there is a, a, a world of teaching in that sentence. Think of another place where it's been similar ideas stated in a more familiar way. God so loved the world that he, or he loved the world in this way, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, remember John 3 says, but that through him the world might be saved. Again, no condemnation, right? Uh, for those who are in Christ, right? For those who would believe. But um, actually, Romans 8 here, verse 3, is telling us something a little bit further. It's not just telling us that God sent his son into the world. It's telling us how. How did God send his son into the world? How did Jesus come? He could have come in a blaze of glory, but he didn't. No, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, when it says in the likeness of sinful flesh, you've got to be careful. That doesn't mean that Jesus only appeared to be flesh, so some kind of illusion. No, Jesus really took our flesh and blood. He became true man, a full human nature, body and soul. And in doing so, he became like us in every way, yet without sin, as Hebrews says. So the likeness of sinful flesh, then, means that Jesus took on everything that it meant to be a true human being living in a world under the curse. A true human being living in a world under the curse. So Jesus didn't come as a human being, an idealized human being floating, you know, six inches above the ground, uh, protected against ever being touched by, you know, pain or suffering um, because he was too holy or too spiritual for that. No, Jesus was not a sinner himself, but he felt the effects of sin all through his life. And it was because he truly took our flesh, that is how he was able then truly to take upon himself our sin on the cross. Not sin that he had done, but he took on himself the guilt and the shame of other people's sin, of our sin. And he suffered for us in our place the penalty that 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 sin deserved by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. God condemned sin in the flesh. This chapter started by saying that there is no condemnation for you. There was for Jesus. Your sin was condemned. The whole reason that there isn't any condemnation for you is because that condemnation has already happened to somebody else. God is just, and so he has to condemn sin. It wouldn't be just for him to ignore it. But he didn't condemn you. That's the good news. He placed that sin on somebody else. He placed it on Jesus' shoulders. As Jesus willingly laid down his life, willingly took that wrath that you justly deserve, that's what was happening on the cross. That great exchange Your sin placed on Jesus, his perfect righteousness placed on you as a free gift. Now, when God did that, when he condemned your sin in Jesus' death, something else happened, too, that Paul is teaching us here. Something happened to the power of sin over you. It's not just that Jesus was condemned instead of you in just this uh, legal transaction. The legal tra- it's not less than that legal transaction. That's really important. But there's something more to be said. He doesn't just say that um, by sending his son to likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned Jesus 
in your place. It says he condemned sin in the flesh. He's saying here, sin itself was condemned, judged, destroyed, rendered inert, you could say. It it was not just a matter of Jesus standing in for you and taking the force of the blow, although that was part of it. But Paul is saying even more than that, that in his death, you could say Jesus took sin down with him. It's like if you've ever read this, the story of, uh, uh, the, of Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty at Reichenbach Falls and how they're locked in this mortal combat at the top of the waterfall until down they both go together. And the villain is finally defeated as the hero plunges with him into the deep. Jesus took sin down with him, and that is why sin no longer has dominion over you. That is good news. And that is how the death of Jesus then paves the way for the message of verse 4. Jesus died not just to save you from the punishment of death and hell. Jesus died, Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, we are not just freed from sin's guilt and punishment. We are freed from sin's power. We've already said that. See, because of what God did for us in Christ's cross, look at what God is now doing in us by the Holy Spirit. We can now walk in a new way, live in a new way, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, when you hear flesh versus spirit there, I want to clear up a common, a common misconception. I'm just going to touch on it today because we're going to spend uh, more time on this later in the chapter, including next time. Um, so when some people hear flesh versus spirit, they instinctively think body versus soul. Okay. Uh, material versus immaterial, physical versus non-physical. That's not what Paul means when he says flesh versus spirit. Notice how the word spirit in verse 4 is capitalized. And I think the translators are right about that. Uh, Paul is not contrasting the physical uh, versus the non-physical. He's contrasting this world, this age of the world that's dominated by sin and death and the brokenness of the curse. That is what he means by the flesh. And he's contrasting that with a new world, a new era or new age of history, a whole new creation that is dominated instead by the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection life that the Holy Spirit is instilling in all of us who belong to the risen Savior, Jesus. He's talking about a new kind of life, a new power for life given to us by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit with a capital S, of course. And the rest of Romans 8 is going to flesh that out, so I won't belabor the point today. I do want to preview it for us for the future, though. Um, But to bring it back, today, we're going to have a lot more time to reflect on flesh versus spirit in the coming verses. But for today, I want to make sure that we pause and don't miss here just the simple glory and grandeur and comfort of this first part of Romans chapter 8. This is one of the most 
precious promises in all of Scripture, and I hope that you all will hide it in your hearts and come back to it time and again. It is, it is simply no good to jump ahead to the new obedience part, to the walking in the Spirit part, if we miss this first foundational proclamation for you for all time, that for you who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. That because of the death of Jesus, you are forgiven and you are free. No condemnation now I dread. Because God has intervened to do for you what the law could not, what you could never do for yourself. Because of those pierced and bleeding hands of Jesus. Yeah, curfew shall not ring for you. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the promise of this text. And we ask that you would help us to take it to heart and to live from it this spirit-empowered life, a new gravitational attraction pulling us towards love for the Lord Jesus and service to him. Thank you that sin's penalty has been canceled and its power has been broken. And we ask that you would help us to live in that comfort and in that energy in this coming Uh, week and beyond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.